0: The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Patrick. Thank you for tuning in this week. I have a special guest. His name is Matt Smith. Uh, He's the CEO of Royalty Exchange and it, Matt's been a, a mentor of mine for years. He was my formal business coach for the better part of, of three years. And one of the smartest guys in business that I that I know. And he has a, a really cool business. Talk about a non-correlated asset investment and just a, a unique class of investment in and of itself, which doesn't really exist anywhere. But Matt's background goes into a, a lot of entrepreneurial ventures, including publishing companies. He's bought and sold many, is a partner in many, has a brilliant marketing mind and he's also, you know, a passionate free market advocate and now his venture is dedicated to, you know, just one of those demands in the marketplace when it comes to an income stream that comes from royalties and he essentially is facilitating a company in a way to monetize that where it makes sense for an investor and also makes sense for the intellectual property owner. So guys, you guys are going to enjoy it. Matt is one of, he's really smart. Follow him on on social media. And definitely sign up for a royalty exchange account uh, so you guys can kind of see how, how cool the platform is and, uh, and this investment class. I hope you guys are doing good in relation to everything that's going on. I know it's crazy out there. Hope you're safe. Hope you're healthy. And I uh, hope you're happy. I mean, it's one of those times where we realize the value in things that we uh, typically take for granted. And I'm grateful for this time. It's definitely challenged me from a business standpoint, from a personal standpoint. And I hope you guys are looking at this as being a great opportunity to grow but hang in there. Enjoy the podcast. And we have a lot of cool episodes coming up as well. So stay tuned for those. All right. Without further uh, delay, here's my interview with Matt Smith. So Matt, it's awesome to have you in. Th- thank you so much for taking the time to do this. As I mentioned in the intro, I have tremendous respect for you and what, what you've done in business, what you've taught me personally. And I'm excited to interview you right? because we're in times that we haven't experienced before. And I think because of the global nature of things and how interconnected we are, there's news all over the place and we're hearing tons of information, good, bad. I'd love to get your take on that first and then get into what I feel is just an, an amazing company from what you've built. And it's super niche, right? And it's just one of those investments, one of those businesses that people kind of know about the idea. At the same time, being able to turn it into some sort of a, an investment opportunity is, uh, is quite something else. So first, like you obviously are plugged in. You're an intuitive person, a deep thinker. Like, how do you view markets as they stand right now? What's going on in society? The huge volatility swings with what's going on. Like, what's your view on that?
2: Well, I think obviously the major issue that's going on right now has to do with the coronavirus. But my view is basically that's not actually the cause of all the market volatility, that it is, it's adding to the concerns that the market is trying to deal with right now. But there were actually deeper sort of toxicity within the system already that's been there for a while. And I mean, we've been, it's a credit bubble we've been building for a long, long time. Just feels like it's the pin has pricked it. And, you know, all the wild swings are essentially the market trying to find some sense of value.
1: It's been amazing how quickly it's gone. It's like surprising to me, it's like these huge corporations, within just a couple of days, it's like, we need a bailout, we need money, we need it's it's just man it, really ill prepared from a number of different perspectives. That
2: is one of the most shocking things. It's like, <laughs> is anyone in America ready to go a month? Is any corporation? I mean, literally nothing has happened yet at this stage. I mean, nothing's I mean, real, well, let's say two weeks ago, nothing had happened in America. No, not serious at all yet. And then everyone's screaming for bailouts about two weeks ago, starting about two weeks ago, and it just shows how ill-prepared everyone was. There's no resilience whatsoever in anyone's, in a, maybe in, the, in most families' balance sheets, certainly, but definitely in none of these huge corporate balance sheets at all. It's just unbelievably awful the way they've been managed.
1: It's interesting to see how well-prepared you know, the government was to figure out a way to spend $2 trillion. I would challenge anyone, right? All right, you have a day to figure out how to spend $2 trillion. Go. <laughs> it's going
2: to take <laughs> 1,100
1: pages. No kidding. It's like, wow, they were prepared to do that, but they weren't very prepared
2: to do anything else. <laughs> I know, it's unbelievable. Emily, so, the, so the markets, I think right now, it's, the markets are a place that you just prefer not to be involved with if you can help it. I mean, some people, because your situations may not have a choice, but I think the volatility is going to continue as the market tries to kind of digest everything that's going on in the world, what the economic reality will look like six months from now. All the big companies have essentially removed guidance you can't value a company on PE ratio when you, you don't, you know, no one has any idea what the E will be at all. So, a lot of things are set are out the window, and it's a very uncertain time if you're a stock market investor, that's for sure.
1: So, one thing that we haven't discussed on the show, and I think you're versed enough to maybe talk about it before we get to royalty exchange, but there's the word buyback, right? The word buyback is now a big part of this stimulus bill and preventing buybacks. I think people understand dividends. They understand big bonuses to CEOs, but a buyback, like why is that in there? And what does it have to do with kind of the bubble, the credit bubble that you mentioned just a moment ago?
2: Okay. So stock buybacks in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with In fact, it can be very good for the investors in those companies. But like most tools, if it's abused, it can cause a lot of damage. So Essentially, because of the way that the taxation works in these corporations, if they're looking at, well, we can make, we can do a dividend distribution to our shareholders, or we can buy back stocks, in which case, essentially, increase the per share dividend that everyone's getting, then they choose most often to do these stock buybacks because it just it's more tax efficient, and investors usually celebrate that idea. It's because it's, it's fundamentally good for investors. However. These executive pay packages that these supposed leaders of these big companies have had are usually connected to stock price. And one way to make sure that your price goes up essentially is to take a lot of the stock out of circulation. And so the stock price goes up because there's fewer shares, but really no improvement to the corporation has been made. Meanwhile, if you're doing that, especially at the expense of preparing for a rainy day, I mean, it's absurd that Boeing is going to shut down. And then the CEO comes on and says, if there are any restrictions on any benefit from you guys, we're not having anything to do with it. (laughs) I was like, great deal, deal. Sell your stock to the public market to raise capital like any other company would have to do. So stock buybacks aren't really bad, but they were definitely abused. And certainly they were given preference over making investments in the long-term or preparing for a rainy day. And that's coming back to bite companies in a serious way. The one thing that kind of reveals that what we're talking about earlier though, about the underlying toxicity in the market relating to stock buybacks, is that all of the improvement, the increase in share price over about the last 11 years in the S&P comes from stock buybacks. So if those companies weren't buying back their shares over that time period, the S&P would be at the same level it was 10 or 11 years ago. So it really makes you wonder what was really even happening in the market. If If it was just the corporations using all the cash that they were generating to buy their own stock... It was a giant financial exercise that didn't really serve anyone very well.
1: But I think it's the unintended consequence of low, of low interest rates, right? So yeah. the theory behind low interest rates is that people will borrow and be more productive. Right. But with corporations, they would take on really big corporate debt at low interest rates that pension companies would buy or other big institutional investors or sovereign funds would buy. Then they would use it not to increase the value of the company by innovating R&D, infrastructure, they would buy
2: back their stock with it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, even even Apple, who has something like a quarter of a trillion dollars in cash. Yeah. But I think a big part of it, because a lot of that cash is overseas. And then if they brought it back, then they have to pay taxes on it. So instead they sell bonds and then they use that debt said, to buy back their own stock. I mean, it's financialization of the world has not been good for the world.
1: And there's obviously those that have incentives to do it. You had mentioned that before, keeping shareholders happy, maintaining a dividend level, maintaining kind of a consistent growth, right? And then also their specific benefit and incentive packages. At the same time, it's put them in a pickle, right? Because they have big debt payments and, you know, if they start to go down, right, in value, that's that's ultimately not going to be good. But that's going to be interesting to see how this all shakes out.
2: It will be very interesting to watch, yes.
1: But at the same time, you know, sometimes failure, and even bankruptcy. Most people think bankruptcy is one of those, like the company goes under and they're no longer around, right? right. The, the bankruptcy is simply just restructuring, right? And selling with creditors. And I think it's really healthy for companies
2: sometimes. It really is. I mean, their bankruptcy laws are designed to preserve the assets and to pr- preserve the capability to be productive, but basically wipe out debt, the capital structure in the organization. And I was talking to someone else about this the other day and they hear these, threats about the airlines going bankrupt. And I said, did you fly in 2012? Because all the, all the airlines went bankrupt during that time period, but the, they didn't cancel flights. They didn't fire the employees. Mm-hmm. Like the planes kept flying, but they went through bankruptcy where they restructured all their debt. They restructured the equity. That's just what they should be doing again. So, I mean, but I think they're just putting fear into people that bankruptcy means, you know, it's the end for people. And it's just trying to protect this investor class really. And it's, it's a big mistake.
1: It is, yeah, and it's just a, the definition of that word, right? Needs to be understood. It's all it's equated to failure and obsolescence, right? Than it is to a good thing restructure. You hit the nail on the head. The capital structure, because right now it's you know the capital structure of most companies that want to stay relevant has to include a lot of debt,
2: right? And they can't survive on it. When I was talking to the, so the person about this the other day, I said the same thing with personal bankruptcy. I mean, it is seen as a black mark and a failure, and it is. I mean, it obviously if you get to that point, you've definitely things have gone bad, but. We're a society that believes in the opportunity for renewal, the opportunity to like to do it over, that it doesn't you aren't condemned forever by something. And so yes, there are consequences for filing for bankruptcy, but when you come out of it, you come out of it with a chance where you give you there's hope that you can be productive and contribute again. They're there for a reason.
1: And the quicker you can actually start the process over, right, the lessons done. If you keep prolonging, right, the inevitability of failure, it's like you're not going to be able to start the cycle over again, right? Or to learn right. the lesson and apply it to have an even better business.
2: Right. The bottom line is with markets, it's supposed to be the good application of capital. So you deploy capital when it, you know, the, it, in productive uses, and then you're know, and then you rewarded for that use. And then, and bankruptcy is supposed to basically break down the misallocation of capital and sort of remake it so that new people can come on and use those productive assets and do something with it. So it's, it's a really important part of the capitalist system we've had exactly a capitalist system for a while no, but this yeah. proves it again that it's less existent than ever. I think the fact that, we're one, that we our first instinct is to bail everyone out right away,
1: and so the best thing would be for some of them to fail because that would it would replace leadership. It would put better people in there, more innovative people in there, and I think that's healthy, right? Because when some that's one of the worst things it's the whole moral hazard idea, right? Where morally, like we learn when we fail, right, and that's a good thing because we're better and we're stronger. But when you prevent that right? People don't learn the lesson they should have. And that means that they're going to have to learn at some point in the future, it's just going to be bigger.
2: <laughs> right. Exactly. It's just, in many ways, it's like if you're a parent and you don't allow your child to ever experience any negative consequences for anything that happens in their life, like, are you actually helping them or are you hurting them? Negative feedback is a gift and you, it, it helps us adjust to course correct and make better decisions in life and be more successful. So it's critical. And certainly moral hazard is everywhere at this point. <laughs>
1: Well, one of the guys over the last I would say year and a half that I've formed kind of an affinity toward is, is Ray Dalio, and I know he's you know he's a super successful guy, big you know hedge fund guy, but he wrote a really good book called Principles, and the principles relate to business, they relate to your, your personal life. So I really respect him, and one of the things he says from a financial standpoint is when you're making an investment, right, you want uncorrelated investments as many as possible, right? Because today. I would say even though you have different sectors, you have different classes of investment, it's on kind of a trading floor or a, an index, you still have these shifts that regardless right of the sector or the industry will fluctuate kind of with the tide. And so he talks a lot about the, un, the idea of uncorrelated assets. And he also has an amazing video that's called How the Economic Cycle Works. And it's not like the philosophy of it, which is interesting. Most people have a philosophical approach to how things should work, but he talks about how it works, which I think is exactly. fascinating, right? And he, again, going to the uncorrelated investments because of how cycles work, right? There are opportunities when things go down and opportunities when things go up, but they may not be in the same class of investment. And that's why I wanted to bring you know you on with, and maybe you can comment about Ray Dalio and about economic cycles, but then I wanted to talk about the niche that you discovered, which I would say is like an uncorrelated investment that... I don't know if there's any other platform or any other opportunity to own it but through royalty exchange.
2: Well, I see Ray Dalio is brilliant. I mean, he has had the longest, like, untarnished record of investment, I think, of anyone. It's quite impressive. And his book is very good. And I also think that he actually has a little children's version of that. I don't know if you know, which which is really good too. Some really good points, I think, for for people. And um, my kids have read it. So I think he's got a lot to teach us, that's for sure. I think the market's activity recently has really shown how correlated basically everything is. People who, especially if you haven't been in the markets for a while, were surprised that that gold got crushed at the same time basically as everything else. And 2008 that happened too for a while at least. But you know, it's just when when there's a demand for dollars, essentially everything goes down. Everybody needs liquidity. But you know, the point about correlation and and where um, royalty exchange fits into that is that what our business does is we work with on one side artists. Almost all in music, although we've done a couple of things outside of that. But it's almost all music. So these are typically songwriters, often for major acts, for major artists who you know and love. So it's the music you you listen to on the radio. But behind that artist are often several songwriters who actually craft the work. They earn royalties on the use of that music in the same way the performing artist would, and actually in some in some cases in a better way than the performing artist would. And so. Any song, every time it's played on Spotify, every time it's played on the radio or whatever, there's royalties earned for these different rights holders. And it generates pretty substantial income for those artists. And I would say the vast majority, if you look at like Spotify, for instance, if you want to go you know, look at a publicly traded company that really is focused on the music business, you'll see that something around 70% of $0.70 cents on every dollar in revenue they bring in, they have to pay out to the rights holders. So, that would be the labels, the performing artists, the songwriters, the publishers that own the IP. So, their cost of goods sold essentially is incredibly high for that business. And especially because of the boom in streaming over the last several years, it's been really good for rights holders. And it used to be in the music business that music that almost all of the revenue was generated in the music business was from new work, from music that had come out, been out for less than 18 months. This changed because of streaming. And now more than half of the revenue that's created comes from what the music industry calls deep catalog, which is music that's been out for more than... The deep catalog in the music business is only music that's been out for more than three years. That's how short-term thinking they typically are. But for instance, Dire Straits, if you, if you remember who Dire Straits is, they haven't disbanded, I think, you know, in the mid-90s. Okay. So a long time ago. And yet, uh, and we own, I own personally some, some royalties on, on, on their music. And their royalty income, or my portion of the royalty income certainly, grew 12% last year. So even though the band hasn't been performing forever, that the music is old, because of basically exposure on these streaming vehicles, it's generating more and more income. So it's kind of the rising tide with the music industry, essentially. So in any case, what we do is we work with artists who own these rights on one side, but have a, have a need or desire for a sort of a lump sum payment for it instead. And then we work with investors who are looking for yield and just sort of match them up in our marketplace. That's really what royalty exchange is all about. And we were talking before about market correlation. Most of the royalties that we sell on our platform are what's considered songwriter public performance royalties. So that's a whole specific class of music royalties. And I could go into it's probably more degree than anyone is interested in about the different sort of slices of royalties that are there. But... We looked at that specific slice in particular, and we looked at the income that's produced from that or paid out to artists for that during the last major market downturn we had during the financial crisis. And essentially, we compared the growth in distributions to rights holders. We compared that with the growth in dividends within the S and P 500, and there is no correlation there at all. So while while, while essentially dividends from you know, S&P companies during the financial crisis, of course, shrank because they had to cut dividends you know, to save capital and all that. They continued to grow throughout that entire period for music royalties. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. Part of it is, is that the consumption of music isn't fundamentally altered by that kind of activity that wasn't related to the financial markets. But the second thing is, is that there's long-term contracts, essentially licensing agreements that exist. So... The radio stations and all of that you know have these long-term licensing agreements with these public performance companies, and essentially, so there's a multi-year delay. So if their ad revenue is shrinking, so they can't justify as big of a licensing deal with these uh, performance rights organizations that represent all the artists. Then what happens is a few years after sort of the downturn has happened, they renegotiate a new deal. You know, that's that are under slightly better terms, but. It's often works perfectly in terms of the market correlation, you know, so once the market actually catches up with that sort of downtrend, the contract's already there and it's already, it continues to be paid out among those old terms, which were created during the good times.
1: Did you just, because I would look at like a potential inverse correlation, because you'd think that, you know, when things are going down, where there's correction, recession. Like people would want to be lifted up by listening to music, or, or you know, increasing their entertainment. Do you, is there was there any like inverse correlation based on that?
2: I mean, it's hard to know if the consumption increase during that time period had to do. I mean, the general business was in a decline. The music business was in a big decline after you know the introduction of Napster essentially in the year two thousand. So there was a, that you had that major cross current happening, and then you also had kind of the the rise in there were digital downloads through Apple Music through iTunes at the time. And then also streaming was just starting to come in the various early stages. So there's those major cross currents. It's really hard to see there. I, I will say, we I did see some recent information showing that last week, you know, which was like the first period where what's the turmoil that's happening in the United States was seen, that streaming consumption went down. That's music streaming consumption went down. Now, that doesn't substantially affect actually most of the deals that happen on our platform because of the rights, the specific rights that we sell on our platform. But but still, that's probably because if people are staying home and they don't have a commuting time, maybe it's cut there. And it wasn't a huge decrease, but there was a little bit. But maybe everybody was just watching the news to figure out what the heck was going on in the world. And they could have been that, I don't know. But ultimately, we do see from 2008, certainly that distributions to artists continued to grow while distributions to investors in the S&P shrank. Hmm.
1: Are you paying attention to how like intellectual property and royalties will work globally. Do you see, an, is there any traction there or is that just pretty much a, a throwout just given the complexity of every
2: country's intellectual property laws? It is deeply complex, but these music organizations, there are essentially organizations that are set up in every country around the world that manage the use of intellectual property within that country and the licensing, the agreements essentially For use by folks in other countries. So, if you think about Spotify, for instance, how they waited for a long time before they finally deployed in the US. And it was because of these unique territorial licensing agreements that had to be worked out with the music labels at the time. So, international is a strong component of royalties that are earned. I mean, one of America's great exports actually is our culture, you know, film and TV and music. So, um, a big portion of the royalties that are created are generated overseas.
1: Yeah, it was, it, there was a, a presentation I saw a few months ago, and I, it was either I think it was Peter Diamandis that was giving it, talking about the growth of people coming online, and it's going to essentially double in the next next couple of years just because of the satellite infrastructure that's currently going in place. And you're right; it's one of those things where whether it's TV shows or movies or pop culture, music, right? It just continues. Yep. The more people that are online, the more people are going to have access access to it because usually you know, more underdeveloped countries don't have the structure in place to, to create the songs and not necessarily have the ability to come together as multiple artists with that organization and to get the same quality. So I think you have some, some protection there. But it's also interesting how the global demand will increase and probably improve royalties as well.
2: Yeah. The other thing I would say is that you might be familiar with Techstars, which is a, a technology incubator. And they have like, it's, they have like franchises essentially all over the world. For different sectors. And there's one for music. And we're one of the sponsoring members of it, meaning we we contribute capital to fund the different startups that are going through the incubator, alongside of Warner Music and Sony Music and a Sony Corpse innovation fund is in there, and lots of others, lots of other people in the music business. And the music industry has a really bad reputation, I think, probably well earned in part for not being innovative when Napster came along, you know, for missing that and then not adjusting well to it, and you know, kind of got dragged kicking and screaming into the streaming world. It certainly doesn't seem that that's what's happening anymore. It seems like they learned. And, and you know, working with them all the time, working with the different companies that are coming through the Techstars Incubator, you can see that they're constantly looking for new ways to license the music, essentially license the IP anywhere they can. And so whether it's new consumer apps like TikTok and your kids or grandkids, the people listening to this will know what that is, but it's been huge and driven a lot of new royalty income for rights holders that just it literally didn't exist a year ago, but now it's a big source of revenue in gaming license licenses, you know, for within video games, all of that's happening. So the music industry is finding new ways to kind of bundle in licensing opportunities with music into other experiences. And that, I th- that also is, is proven to be a significant driver for ongoing royalty revenue.
1: Yeah. My, you know, my mom is a, was a music professor and I, Grew up around music. My brother is a, a professional artist in in Vegas, and you know, music is just one of those things that I've come to believe is part of life. It's part of what motivates us, right? And and what gets us through things. So, it, nice. you know, it's 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 really cool to see you know how businesses are innovating ways to bring those opportunities, bring music to other people, more people, and finding innovative ways of doing it. But yeah, I mean, if you look at all the different technologies that are probably coming soon, you know, AR, augmented reality, you know, maybe VR gets a, a second wind, right? Anything new, like if it's just it without music, it's just not the same, regardless of what the technology is.
2: Yeah, I mean, I often say, like, if you want something, or I've said to people before, if you if you want if you want to look, if you ever do a video of yourself, or you're filming yourself doing anything, and you feel like you kind of look silly, well. You slowed it down and added a soundtrack, you could make anybody look like a hero, you know? So it's so If just you go from that like
1: 30 setting to the 23.98, like the frame, the frame yeah. rate, and then you put some music to it, you look like you're a movie star.
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Music makes it, like, it invokes things in us we don't really realize even. So it's huge. And, the, and the, there's a lot of innovation happening around it. Maybe it was late, late to the party, but they're doing a really good job now. And I think that's going to create ongoing sources of earnings for rights holders.
1: So the royalty, you know, going to the royalty exchange platform, essentially, maybe not the primary artist, the one that's on the title of the song.
2: Yeah, a lot of times it's not the performing artist. It's yeah, the, it's the, the, songwriter. The,
1: the songwriter, right? Or maybe a, a producer, you know, a, a music, yeah, one of the musicians that's playing, you know, an instrument. But you know, they have these streams of income coming in. So essentially, they sell that stream of income on your platform for a lump sum, right? They need exactly. money for whatever purpose.
2: Yeah. A lot of people go, well, why would they sell? Well, yeah. you have to understand, these are the the original gig workers. So you talk about Uber drivers and people like that, that are kind of unbankable, meaning like if they want to go get a mortgage for their home, it's really difficult. Well, musicians look like unemployed people. Songwriters look completely unemployed. So their access to capital, the capital markets just doesn't really exist. And so with all of us, a little bit of injection of cash at the right time in your life can have outsized gains, you know, in productivity and what, what's possible in our careers and futures. Same is true of these artists. And this basically the platform creates a, a competitive marketplace where they can get fair market value for their assets.
1: Now, what's unique about royalty exchanges on the, on the platform, first, anybody can go on there and register, right? Is that still available? You can go on and see what's essentially up for bid, but that brings up that point of, of auction. So can you talk briefly just about the auction component? of how somebody goes about buying a royalty stream.
2: Yeah, so there's two ways now that people can buy assets in our marketplace. The primary way and what we're really known for is, these, is auctions. And what basically what happens is we work with an artist, we validate you know, the income from the catalog and, buy, and validate that they in fact own it and have the ability to transfer it. And then we, we set it up for an auction. And so it's a lot like eBay, I guess. It's kind of like maybe an eBay and Sotheby's mix some of the assets can be pretty expensive. We've definitely we've had assets that are in the seven figures that have been auctioned on the platform, but the average bundle of rights that gets auctioned off on the platform is about $60,000. is what the ending price is on it. And and so there's a big range of different assets that get auctioned. And so as a if as an investor if you're interested, we have every auction we've ever done, they're all there. And so if you and you can look at the bidding history and you can look at what the music was and what its earnings were and how much it sold for. And you can get a lot of information just by looking at what's there now. And if you want to, like on eBay, you can watch an auction, you know, so you can see like essentially how people are bidding on it in real time. And I would encourage if you're just if you're interested in this at all, do that. Like go look and watch auctions, but don't bid on anything right away. Just watch some stuff, see how how the market really works, see how other investors who've been bidding on things for a long time interact with it. And you get a much better sense of essentially whether, if it's right for you at all, and if so, at what level. The other part we have, and this is, this is relatively new, we introduced this just within the last, this is probably five months now. It's a secondary market. So essentially, any assets that have in the past transacted on the platform are get automatically listed in the secondary market. Now, essentially, once they're listed in the secondary market, you can see in the secondary market essentially the assets, what their income is. And if, if the owner of that asset now, so this would be the investor, if they own, own it now, are interested in selling it, they can list a list price. Like they can say, buy enough. if you're interested in this, yeah, I'll, I'm willing to sell it for this price. And that's listed there. Alternatively, you can make an unsolicited bid essentially on any asset that is there. So you, there's a much wider variety than you would see up for auction at any one time. I mean, there are, there's you know, north of 150 assets in the secondary market right now. You can compare by age, you know, how old the catalog is by its earnings. The catalog, and you can get get lost probably in it because there's so much information on each one. But it does allow you to, you know, auctions can be a little, you know, make people nervous. And sometimes I know I've been known in charity auctions to make very irrational decisions. Sometimes get competitive in them, so you got to be careful with auctions. But in this environment, you know, in the secondary market, you can just cruise at your own interest, and you can place unsolicited offers for people. And if they, they accept it, then will facilitate the transaction in the background.
1: So talk about how the so let's say i invest in an album or invest in a, a product and now the the income starts like does that come through your platform is there an escrow account like how does all, how does all
2: that work yeah great question so up until about 18 uh, maybe 20 months ago now so here's i guess here's the most important thing is that when you buy one of these it's not as though you need to rely on the artist sending you a check every quarter what happens essentially is title is essentially transferred at the distributor level at, at the organizations that collect and distribute the royalties level and they assign the royalty to the new owner now up until 20 months ago or so we would handle those all individually we would individually title them all and people would receive and so if you own 10 of them you would get 10 different payments from these PROs uh, from these performance rights organizations and you kind of it's difficult to keep track of which one is which but they would we would just have them send all the checks to you since then, we started offering a free service for people where essentially we collect and then immediately send out the payment to people. And the reason we do that is one is we can see if there's an issue. You know, if you have a question about something that's going on, we can help facilitate an answer for that versus hundreds of other people calling these organizations that aren't used to at all dealing with investors or used to dealing with artists. So and also then if it comes time where you want to actually sell the asset, we can facilitate that much more quickly because we have an ongoing record of the performance of the asset. So we essentially facilitate the transaction or the, in the ongoing payments for our investors, and the payments in most cases they occur every quarter. And when I say in most cases, the only times they don't sometimes if it's a with a label, the label might only pay out to the rights holder twice a year, for instance. Some pay every single month, but the typical arrangement is every single quarter it pays out a check, and on average. For last year, those checks amounted to a little over 12% return for the investors.
1: So talk about the taxes. Like, how are, Are royalties taxed differently than other assets?
2: Well, it depends at what point in their life cycle you're really looking at. From an investor perspective, if I acquire somebody's royalties from them, I'm paying them and then they're going to pay a capital gain on it. So instead of paying, they would normally be paying ordinary income on it, the royalty income, but they're going to pay a capital gain. But now as the investor, you pay, and I encourage everyone to consult their own tax authority, <laughs> tax account. I'm not yeah. a tax person, but essentially it's a lot like real estate in that you can amateurize the cost of the asset over time. So you can depreciate uh, it. Yeah. Depreciate it. And so that offsets a substantial portion of the income. Unlike real estate, which might have like a schedule of like 20 years or something, uh, I think in most cases, this is typically 10. So, you know, if it's generating a 10% yield for you. Your tax basis on that's going to be pretty low. You're going to be in a pretty good position. So, it's one of the little poorly understood things about this asset class is that from a tax standpoint, it has special treatment in the tax code and it's really good for investors.
1: Do you guys communicate or have ways in which accountants, you know, so if somebody invests in something like this, direction that they can use to kind of understand the income stream better?
2: Well, we definitely have a letter from a tax attorney that basically, that describes the way that they, and points to the parts of the tax code. So we do facilitate the general guidance from this tax accountant, but no, we don't like set people up with bookkeepers or anything like that around it. That's something they have to handle on their own, but we haven't heard of that being a major problem for anybody at this point.
1: Well, it's fascinating. And and again, it's one of those assets that, you know, I think people are familiar with what royalties are. They're familiar that artists get it, movie stars get it, actors get it. At the same time, it's like how that has been turned into an investment opportunity that there's not really any opportunities. And you mentioned me once that these types of investments exist at a really high level, like, a, gold, like yeah. a Goldman Sachs or a BlackRock level, but not necessarily at the retail level.
2: Right. At the individual level. I mean, and that's been bad for both sides, actually, because it used to be that just the really big featured artists that had a deal that was big enough could go and get liquidity through somebody like Goldman. But for the hundreds of thousands of songwriters who contribute substantially to these works, you know their size of their catalogs were not big enough. The income, while it generated, generates twenty five grand a year for them in passive income. It's great for an investor like that. I go, I would love to own that passive income if I can buy it at a six multiple or an eight multiple. I'd buy it all day long. But for them, there's really there was no market for this, so they had no access to liquidity. Investors had no access to the yield, and I think you know that our goal is to try and. Make it so that it's not just the superstars and not just the Goldman Sachs of the world that transact. So so far, that's happened. we done well with that. Just want to say one thing about the life of these. How long do royalties last? Is one of the common mm. questions people have. Yep, good point. So, in U.S. copyright law, the base anything after 1978, it's looked at like this: the IP is owned by the rights holder for life of the last living author plus 70 years. So, like you might have three writers on one song, and it stays for all three of those rights holders or their heirs, essentially, until all of them are deceased and then the 70-year mark counts, starts counting. So they last for a really, really long time. So there's And and on our platform, we sell primarily the royalties in one of two ways. One way is life of rights, which is life of the last living author plus 70 years. The other way is it's a 10-year term. So You're essentially buying the right to that income stream over the next decade. You get 100% of the income that comes from it. After that 10-year period, it essentially, it goes back to the original rights holder. So both of those are available on the platform. I mean, which one is better? Well, I think it all depends on the price. Most of the earnings of these things, essentially, if you're doing, if you're forecasting out, is going to be over the first decade. The biggest value of those earnings is going to be over the next decade. But as essentially assets that generate income that you can that are uncorrelated it's it's pretty unique whether it's for 10 years or for 70
1: is that choice done by the holder of the ip or is it done by the investor
2: it's done by the holder of the ip i mean that's some awesome. people you know they're told from early in their career don't ever sell your royalties don't ever sell your rights and and the reason for that is is because you always hear these stories about artists getting in these awful deals with labels and things like yep. that and they're just trying to that, that like that knowledge is that that's been passed down it's trying to keep them from getting in those bad deals. So some of them kind of live that way for, you know, until they die. They're never going to sell their rights. But by having the 10 year option, essentially, it really opens up the possibilities.
1: Well, Matt, this has been fascinating. Thank you for sharing all of this. I love your platform too. So can you maybe give the listeners, you know, ways that they can connect with you, connect with Royalty Exchange, get on the platform and, and kind of look at what's going on there?
2: Yeah, the best thing to do is uh, royaltyexchange.com. You can see all of the things we've ever done on there. I mean, all of the assets that have transacted. It's so one of the other things is that this space has always been prone to secrecy. If when deals happen, they're kind of behind closed doors. Like no one talks about how like the multiple they went for or anything like that. But we've done hundreds and hundreds of transactions and all the information around them is in the public domain. So you can you can essentially get a good sense of how the market actually functions. And it makes, it makes it so that you can participate in an intelligent way if it's right for you.
1: Awesome. And if you guys are, are not able to write that down, we'll have the link on the show notes at thewellstandard.com. Matt, thanks again. It's, it's awesome to, to connect with you again. Thanks for sharing this. Uh, any last words?
2: No, just thank you for your time and thank you for all that you do, Patrick. Appreciate it.
1: Okay, everyone. Thanks for tuning in this week. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed uh, the interview and make sure you uh, go on to iTunes, give us a good review. Also, we have a new YouTube channel that's up and running. So youtube.com forward slash The Wealth Standard. And hope you guys have an amazing week and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Wealth Standard podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.